Welcome back for episode two of OMG Omics, Brooker's new podcast series. Stay tuned to hear how Ramon Sun from the University of Florida makes science work for you. Our topic this month is spatial omics, and our guest is Ramon Sun. He's early career, but has already established an impressive record in the field of spatial omics, while dabbling in other areas of research as well. Ramon, thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure, Kate. Thanks for inviting me. Now, you're not a formal mass spectrometrist by training, but we have you here on our Brooker OMG Omics podcast series because you've entered this field in your career, and as you've progressed, you've started asking different kinds of questions that need different tools. Can you tell us about your academic path so far and how you landed at the University of Florida? Uh, yeah, of course. So uh, I've been traveling all over the globe, really. So I, I'm Chinese. I grew up in New Zealand. Um, I did my PhD in Australia and then realized that all the best science is happening in the United States. So I came all the way over here uh, over here to uh, Stanford to do my first postdoc. And uh, my, my wife got into med school in, at the University of Kentucky. So I kind of just dropped everything and moved to Kentucky with her um, and finally got my first faculty position at University of Kentucky. Um, and then she's coming to the end of her residency and she really wanted to be somewhere by the ocean and place that's more fun for the kids. And I, I agreed. So uh, there was an opportunity that um, that I get to move to the University of Florida with some really, really close friends and collaborators who I've been working with for a long time. and you know, I fully realized those things are hard to come by these days in science. So it just it just felt like everything fell into the right place. Family, collaborators, science, and resources. So that's kind of how I ended up in Florida. One of the main reasons uh, we moved to the University of Florida is because they would uh, buy us two of the Brooker's Timstoff flex instruments so I can do more imaging. <laughs> that's actually one of the main drivers of me uh, one of the main considerations of uh, how many of the flex machine I get to have. It's also just nice to hear in your personal story that there's a consideration for family, for balancing. Um, it's always wonderful to hear that you have a two scientist oriented household. Um, I think those types of personalities sometimes come together. Do you have anything else you might want to say on that since we're recording on Valentine's Day? Oh yeah, no. See, see, my wife is actually sleeping uh, downstairs in the bedroom. So she's she's still in residency, and she's had a tough couple years. You know, we have a three year old. Uh, one at a time, COVID hit, and she's pretty much just stuck in the ER. Uh, so she's an emergency uh, medicine resident. So she pretty much just stuck in the ER. She we barely get to spend any time together, and you know, she's it's tough on her to not spend time with kids and. The, the work-life balance is so much harder for a resident compared to me, which is a scientist. So I get I have a lot of freedom in terms of what I do with my time. So the, the work and life balance is really just um, taking care of our kids and hoping to keep my life and career going, but also really to support my wife, who's, you know, who's working much harder than I am on a daily basis and, and actually saving lives <laughs> every single day. So uh, it's, it's, it's definitely a, a weird path in the last couple, couple of years, but I think everything's worked out 
really well. We have a healthy, fun, kind three-year-old, and she's about to finish residency. And I, it looks like my I have an amazing bunch of people in my lab that continuously helping me to to build my career and theirs as well. So, uh, it's it's an interesting path. I, I guess every everybody's a little different uh, on their scientific career, but also I, I'm very much into like you know supporting my spouse and. In, in terms of she getting what she wanted in her, out of her career too, not just trying to just only focus on mine. So when I visited you recently in your lab, um, going through and talking about your, your philosophy for um, raising students, for lack of a better term, um, for mentoring them and, and getting them to a, a good scientific place, I, I can see how that interplay exists. Can you tell me a little bit about, um, you know, how you impart your awe of science to your students? Uh, yeah, sure. So, you know, I come from four generations of educators. So my, my dad and my grandparents and my great-granddad, um, they're all university, like, lecturers and professors, not in science. Uh, my great-granddad is actually a, a really famous philosopher and um, ancient writing expert, so he was kind of famous back 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 in China. So, yeah. So I mean, it, it, education kind of runs in the family. But I I kind of did not really very much enjoy classroom setting teaching. I I much rather mentoring on a one on one basis um, with my trainees, such as my postdoc and my graduate students. And I and I guess the uh, I think I'm like you know relatively new to this academic research setting and being a being a mentor for for everyone around me um so i i do think that i'm the way i think is a little different as a newer like i don't i don't push my 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 trainees towards academic research i just want them to have a goal and work hard for it uh i'm constantly telling them they can be successful no matter what they do you know industry academia being a teacher um all of those you the whatever they choose to do, all I'm asking them is to work hard for it, right? Work hard for their goals. So at least people in my lab are very goal-oriented for their own career successes. Like I, I constantly talk to them about what they want to do when they finish their PhD or their finish their postdoc. And I help design scientific experiments and hypotheses and projects based on their goal and what could benefit, what I can train to benefit them in their future careers. And in terms of the science, I think, um, obviously, I get excited over <laughs> everything. I have a scattered mind. But I, I think I, I talk to my trainees almost every day. Right? Like I, I'll, I'll explain why I'm excited about certain data or why I want to do some of the projects. And, um, and I, I really do think they can sense it. In my tone and in the way I act, like when when I when I'm excited, I, when I'm genuinely excited and and wanting to help, say you and sarcoma is one of the the projects. Like I'm genuinely wanting to help these these kids to live to to see college, to get married, you know, to to see to have kids, and and a lot of them don't get that opportunity anymore. And and I can I can sense that at least as long as I'm genuine, I'm really trying to help these. These, these trainees really, you know, appreciate that and they really uh, adapt to it as well. And they become really, really invested and excited about what we do at, at the same time. Um, 
So most of the the academic research, I always associate a human physiology and human disease aspect of everything that we do, right? So every for every technique they do, every experiment they do, I explain to them, look, this is what we need to do, and this is who we need to help, right? So this is this is the connection. We may not see our progress in the next ten to twenty years, but I, I promise you, the stuff that you do is going to make a difference one day. Even if we just save one person or ten kids, it it doesn't matter. And and a lot of them really, you know, grew to to like that that scenario, right? So they 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 really also share my passion now and 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 the the curiosity for science. Well, I think that you, the trail that you've blazed thus far speaks to your passion for this because you formed multiple companies. You've been able to create assays and, and scientific methodologies that are useful in certain disease areas. Could you tell us a little bit about some of that? Yeah, sure. So, um, Again, I'm a, since the very beginning, I'm a little bit scattered-minded, and I find lots of different things interesting. I, I, it's especially when I was a graduate student, and when I was a postdoc. So before I had Cooper, um, it, research sometimes just isn't enough for me to keep engaged. I am engaged in research, but when I get home, I can never just be that person that kick my shoes off and watch TV. I, I always have to be doing something, right? I'd be working out, running, or Studying companies, so um, obviously I've I've ha- had some stupid and terrible ideas and lost some money, but eventually we we kind of got there, right? So you know, but what what kept me going in science? So I I did a longer than normal postdoc, and I uh, so I did two postdocs, it's eight years, and everybody out there knows that you know postdoc is not a something that pays the bills, right? And 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 and. In my mind, a lot of the postdocs actually ended up switching jobs because the prosperity of earning six figures very, you know, immediately rather than sticking it out to see what you can do as a, as, as a PI. So very early on, I realized that fact. And I've, I've told myself that if I want to, if the only way I can be fully committed to science, academic research, and helping people in the long run is for myself to be financially independent of my job. So that's kind of my first goal. I realized that. So it's like, so from, from that, from that point on, I've always invested in science. I've put every, you know, heart and soul and sweat and blood into all my experiments. But also I realized that, look, I, I, I need to be able to take care of my family. I need to be able to not worry about the financial aspect so I can fully commit on the scientific aspect. So that's where I started looking at companies and coming out with ideas. Uh, so, you know, we randomly came up with the idea of uh, not science related, just have a random app out there back in when I was in a postdoc in Stanford, um, you know, continued working on it. I was up late at night because people in India was, we were, contra- I don't know how to code and write an ad myself. So I was giving the ideas to them and I was up at 12 o'clock in the morning communicating with uh, uh, people who were doing it online to f- finish writing the app and I ended up selling it. You know, it, it, you know, I'm, I wouldn't, wouldn't be saying like, I'm insanely rich from selling the company, but it's, it's enough for me to help my wife go through med school, you know, 
keep a keep a decent living standard a lifestyle but also it really really helped me to focus on science now so now with my my son is here i don't do any of i i i i have companies and i continuous put disclosures but i would say 95 percent of my effort is all just in the lab and in science um the new essays that we're developing i think is super cool and i think it's going to make a difference in the clinics with with your your brooker's instrument actually but um that is that is actually part of the lab workflow now it is no longer something that i do on the side so like if anything that i'm helping it's like okay so i'm combining my passion and helping people and if if this thing can be you know commercialized into a uh you know a, a clinical diagnostic essay all the best at the same time, right? It's like a win-win-win situation for everyone. Fantastic. I just love it. I love hearing every time you talk, there's always such passion and there's always um, a connection and an intention there that that doesn't necessarily come through for, for a lot of people. So I really oh, appreciate you Thank sharing. you. <laughs> yeah. No, no, happy to, yeah. All right, so why don't we turn back to the science for a minute? So I appreciate you sharing, um, you know, more about your life and how you got to this point. But I'm sure you've also noticed and experienced that spatial biology is just having such a huge moment right now. So what are your thoughts as this starts to propel forward? And does mass spectrometry have a, a significant place here? Yeah, no, of course. So obviously I'm biased because I am invested my <laughs> the future of my research program in spatial biology especially spatial especially spatial uh, metabolomics right so i don't know if you guys saw the latest um nature article that just came out last week that highlight the seven technologies to watch and uh, you know spatial metabolomics especially multi-based spatial metabolomics is right up there with the 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 space telescope to watch for 2023 so it, it, it's not just, I guess it's not just us who thinks that this is the technology of the future. It is the technology of the future. And, um, I, and I think Brookers is always leading the way at innovating on, on the technology front that makes all of our researchers' jobs so much easier in, in terms of getting, utilizing the tool and get stuff done, right? So you, you, you guys pretty much made the best tools out there so that we can apply our like creativity and see how to use this to get the, the most out of our research. So yeah, I, I, I think uh, we're, we're going to see um, a lot more spatial metabolomics papers. We're going to see a lot more applications uh, of spatial metabolomics in actually answering foundational biological questions, right? So I don't know, uh, there, there's a new paper that came out in Science Advances that they use spatial metabolomics uh, to figure out a new uh, type of muscle fiber. You know, that was a very fascinating read. I, I, I apologize, I cannot remember the, the, the senior author's name. Um, but yeah, that was, that was an incredible story to, to, to read and, and think about how you can apply this technology in, in, in actual research now. So I, I think we're gonna see a lot more things that we don't even know that we wanted to know from five to 10 years ago. So it's, it's definitely an exciting space. And then I do think that mass spec is this last frontier in the spatial biology revolution, I think, because 
you have genes that translate to protein. And what does protein do? Protein carry out metabolic function that form metabolites. Whether it's oxphos, <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, I hate the word. Uh, whether it's ATP, whether it's lipids, whether it's enlin glycans, hyperglycans, uh, glycans, all of these are products of protein activity, enzyme activity. So you, you go down the line of transcription, translation, and now we're at the metabolism front of this. And then the key is having good computational methodologies to, to, to actually help us make sense of all the data, really, from that perspective. <laughs> So that's the other side where I see the innovation that comes in with you. Um, I know that you take out a lot of the data that you collect, and then you take it out and do the computational work that you want on it, and then bring it back into Skills Lab, which is our our main um, software. So what do you need and what do you see for the future of AI and for bringing in new technologies and tools to help researchers get the, the output that they need to make decisions on biological questions yeah well that that's a very good question and i think i guess there's no one one answer to to that question i think it's really up to the creativity of the the user right what i i think that the broker software and the api we're only limited by our imagination from that perspective right so anything that you can think of we should be using and apply using these extremely beautiful and complex data sets. Uh, so at least from my perspective, I'm working with uh, Dr. Derek Allison from University of Kentucky. Again, I, I make a lot of good friends when I collaborate with people and we end up being <laughs> really good friends uh, in the long run as well. So I'm still working with a lot of good clinicians back in the University of Kentucky who, who I've been working with the last five years. So our goal is to apply AI well, most specifically machine learning to really help pathologists to predict digital pathology regions using the skill and the, and the, and the uh, uh, spatial metabolomics hardware. Um, so the, our goal is really uh, boost pathologies, pathologists' uh, workflow, right? If they're limited at 10, 20 slides a day, we hope to use machine learning AI to to tell them where to look and maybe hopefully bring them that up to a hundred slides a day. So with, with that, they can one, much faster at finding pathology regions that they're interested in. And two, I would definitely envision that the turnaround back to patient is a lot faster. So one of my, one, another good friend's dad recently was diagnosed uh, with a rare form of cancer and the, the pathology turnaround is very slow, right? They, not no jab on the pathologist for sure. I mean, but it's, it's harder to understand these kind of di- diagnoses. So when you have cancer, the last thing you want to do is sit there for three to five days and getting a report back. So I, what I really, one of the efforts that we do with AI and machine learning is to speed up that process in the clinics in, in the future, right? But that's not a, that's not a five year, that's not something that can be done in, in five years. Or maybe ten, but it's not. It's certainly not going to stop us from trying, right? We're going to take one step at a time and get there when we get there. So there's a lot of time ahead, right? But but I think the the potential is here. The technology is here to be translated to the clinics now, and uh, I think I really think there's there's lots of uh, potential in that in that area. And then on the on the research side, 
what we do is really rely on an anatomical annotation matching to high dimensionality reduction uh, mechanisms. And actually, we just started to implement the multiplex IHC MassFact workflow to give us more cell lineage identity in term and make more sense of what we're seeing in the in the spatial biology platform. Uh, so there's there's definitely a lot more future there. We're still actually applying the technology and see what we get, <laughs> just because no, I guess no one's done it right. When you when it comes to spatial metabolomics, the hardest part is you go out and you search for a paper and say, hey, has anyone done this better or have I already have a, a, a path forward and then you look Google and then you're really like, oh, I'm on my own on this one. So we almost just kind of have to take it day by day and look at our data and see what we can get out of it on a day-to-day basis right now. <laughs> you're building your own OMG moments because you're like, oh, I have nothing to reference. I have nowhere to go with this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it, it yeah. is actually really fun. So my, my computational science PhD student, she amazing student. And uh I, I think we're we're getting ready to prepare some manuscripts and using some of the new code that he developed to look at all the different uh, anatomical reg- regions and and put the metabolism into metabolic pathways and all all in one um, uh, R studio code that everyone can use um, and hopefully apply it to to the Brooker uh, workflow and the, the goal of that is really to help scientists who use the the spatial metabolomics technology to make more sense of their data from a from like a 10,000 10, foot view, right? Rather than going through one image at a time, we really want to hey, say, hey, look, in, in, in the frontal cortex, in the brain region, in AD mice or AD humans, it, it looks like uh, glyco or phospholipids is decreased or increased in certain regions, and then give them a path forward to test their hypothesis in additional biological models. So Ramon, I'm going to come back to the theme of curiosity because you brought it up a few times and it's something that's always resonated with me. There's a quote from Einstein about staying curious. And so I'm curious, do you have any big brain people that you really admire and that have helped you, influence you um, and how you think about and look at science? That's a great question. Um, I guess all the scientists who've done it better and done it who done it already before me. All of those people are inspiring. Like, I don't really have a single person. I, I'm more of like, I, I'll look at everybody's qualities and I'll try to learn as much qualities from everyone that come before me and see what makes them successful and kind of just incorporate all of that to myself, right? And and I am curious and that's one of the, I guess, qualities that makes me continue want to do these scientific investigations. But I, I also think that curious is not enough in my mind. I think I think you need to be I think you need to be fierce and, and willing to take risks in this in this in this um, you know constantly evolving scientific world. Um, having curiosity. I'm curious about this, but if I don't know how to do an essay, if it prevents me from doing it, which I think I ran into a lot of these cases as I was being a scientist in a career. It's like having a curious mind, but don't have the the tenacity or the f- be fears to actually accomplish your curiosity to really see what's on the other end. That 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 seems to be a barrier for a lot of the scientists, or at least some of my trainees that I've seen out there. 
and that's not the thing that I've I've always tell my 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 trainees is like, hey, let's not worry about finances. Let's not worry about is it too expensive. We have one shot at this. We're either gonna succeed and help people, or we're gonna go down in flames. But what I'm certainly not going to do is try to save my research dollars and drag out another five years and doing mediocre science that only what is safe to do. So I think having a curious mind is is great, but you got to be fierce and be willing to apply and do things that's out of your comfort zone to to tackle that curiosity that's in my mind. And actually buying buying a spatial imaging instrument when I had zero mass spec experience is one of those things that I did to sacrifice my curious, curious mind, right? So Richard Jake did a pilot experiment with me that, you know, we've been collaborating since our first email exchange, right? He's kind enough to just do a set for me. Our paper got accepted in the cell metabolism a year later. And now we have a joint MPI R1 together on mapping brain glycans. Um, you know, after seeing that very first data set, I was just, lack of better word, mesmerized by by what spatial can do. And and I remember my mentor at the time said, hey, Ramon, you only get one ask when you start your tenure track position. Um, are you sure a spatial mass spec imager, mass spectrometer, mass spectrometer is what you want? Because it's going to take over 50% of your startup and there's real no guarantee that it will work right? This is five years ago. There's no guarantee that it will work. And and I just told him, look, this is this is something I want to do. The curiosity sets in, but also I'm like, whatever, you know, if I, if I, if I go down, I'll go down in flames. But if I, if I'm successful, I can be really successful with the spatial technology. So kind of just went with my gut feeling and purchased the machine and start using it. <laughs> so it sounds like no regrets. No regrets here so far. No regrets, zero, zero regrets. And scientifically and family, like I, it's kind of my, I, I don't, I don't have a lot of regrets. That's awesome. Yeah. So I know that you cited that nature article and I'm really glad that you brought that up with the technologies to watch this year, but what else do you have your eye on that might be complementary to spatial metabolomics? Do you see something else that you think you're going to start incorporating in to help balance your analytical techniques? Yeah. So one of the the other aspects that we're really investing is um, in vivo omics imaging by MRI. Um, so we've I have a graduate student starting to look at metabolic changes in the brain. Uh, this Matt Merritt, who's literally if I'm at work, he literally sits behind me. Um, he's this amazing guy, super smart. He came from uh, UT Southwestern and, and um, he does metabolism. So we speak the same language, but, but he's a NMR, in vivo NMR and MRI expert. And uh, I really want to put myself in one of those MRI machines and start measuring my brain, brain metabolism, right? So he's got this contrast agent using deuterated glucose and we're just going to put this magnet on, on my head and start measuring. And I, I, I think whatever we see using multi-imaging needs to be implemented in the clinics because we always see these endpoint metabolism differences, but we need to be able to figure out how we can help these with patients who's, who's lived. And I think MR or in vivo NMR is technology to pair with 
um, multi imaging to really bring this into a more physiological setting. So that's that's kind of the the pairing technology I am invested in with multi imaging. Um, I, I want to use contrast agents, uh, isotopic tracers. Um, in in we have two of the. Um, I don't know if you know that. Florida hosts uh, one half of the National Magnet Labs, so we have incredible resources in in our uh, couple Brooker NMR <laughs> systems down there too. So they have incredible NMR MRI. We have three, so we have two, three Tesla human MRI instruments. Um, really, really would like take advantage of translating my knowledge from all the imaging or all the uh, spatial data sets to come out with hypothesis and testing humans, right? And I told Matt uh, Merritt, it was like, I'm the moment that machine's up and running, I'm the first one that's gonna go in there to get scanned. So I, I and now there's targets, right? So we've we've done enough upfront research. Now we can find we we have candidate to pursue in the MRI uh, to to study dementia cancer. And we can once we have these targets, we can go to the MRI and start looking for them. Uh, to start, you know, coming out with rather than don't know where we're looking for in a in an in a MR MRI scan. Now we have these unique targets. We can use tracers and contrasting agents to really hone in on how are these changes during AD um, or cancer, and how we can either use them as diagnostic clinical biomarkers for progression or find ways to to reverse these uh, uh, these phenotypes. It's just astounding the, the the connections that you're making and the the various ways that you're able to see, um, be curious, be fierce, and enact all of this. Um, I think I think you've got a really special place in Florida, and and they're helping you to to continue to grow and do amazing things. Uh, yeah, hundred uh, percent agree. And I really just want to highlight the fact that um, it's not just me. One, my 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 lab. I really shouldn't be me. It's always should be we because I have an amazing group of trainees, uh, uh, research analysts, scientists in my lab who's absolutely who build this absolutely amazing culture that everyone. I hope everyone's happy. Um, but they all work hard. They push each other. They help each other. But also, every bit of academic success for myself or if any, it's it's. I've got a credit to my to my collaborators. I, I'm just one person. I don't have the knowledge in the world of multidisciplinary everything that I, I want I want to study, right? So, you know, Matt Gentry, Craig Vanderkoy, Derek Derek Allison, uh, uh, Matt Merritt, these are just few of the uh, uh, and Warren Allen and some of the, these collaborators I met in Kentucky, some of them I met in Florida. We got they became great friends, but not only that, but also they held my hands through things that I don't understand. They help. They help to satisfy my curiosity needs, right? They have their own areas of expertise. They and they can help apply that all of those things to what I do, and vice versa. So it's it's really a mutually beneficial relationship. But almost everything that I do, I I do rely on collaborations. I do rely on friends and. Um, I guess yeah. I I just couldn't couldn't credit myself. Like I think if if anything, my team and and, and my collaborators deserve more credit <laughs> at, at willing willing to work with me <laughs> and put out with me on a day to day basis. 
Well, you know, I've actually got a challenge for you to, to kind of finish this off. Something that you might yeah. have to turn back to your team for. Because I yeah. noticed a small deficiency when I was in your lab. There's you no mass copper yeah. You don't have I a know. champion to channel all of that curious, fierce energy. So I don't know if you can think of something right now, but you might have to go back to that collaborator yeah, team. Yeah, I might, I might have to that collaborator team, and uh, I'll have to get back to you on that. I, I am always... The, the techniques keeps me going. The science is the end product, but I'm, I'm, I'm always in love with developing new tools to study something that I need to understand. And, and to be honest, that, that kind of, that's a big part of the reason I stayed in science is the, the, the developing new tools. And, and I'm, one of my, my Nick Dunkel, my my postdoc mentor, saying if you if like if you can't do it without if if you can only do science with pre purchased kits, you're not a real scientist. <laughs> and I've I've got that resonated with me really well since 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 I started right. So I I've always loved developing my own my own complex or simple techniques to answer complex biological questions, and that's. That part, not all of it, but that specific part of science is is what keeps me curious and keeps me going and just so passionate about it. But again, using using Bruker's instrument is, and, and developing new techniques is, is some of the coolest things that we've, we've done in the last year or so. It's been such a pleasure to, to get to know you over the course of the last year. We've interacted in a variety of places. You've welcomed me into your lab. I'm sure we'll continue to work with and interact with each other. And I can't thank you enough for sharing. Oh, no problem. Stories. Come back to the lab anytime. <laughs> <laughs> All my people love you. So come back and visit anytime. <laughs> Happy to be welcomed with open I don't know. I don't know what you bribed them with, but they all love you. So. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed the second podcast that we had with Ramon Sun from the University of Florida. I'm really kind of in awe and I'm having my own OMG moment at how well he incorporates so many different aspects of science to bring together a way to answer his biological questions. But we did see a small challenge that he has. He doesn't have a mascot in his lab. And I'm sure his students, his trainees, his postdocs are in need of something to keep them going more than Ramon. So I'd like you to look at what's flashing on the screen and vote for your favorite in the comments section.